Chapter Three of Crime, Its Cause and Treatment by Clarence Darrow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Chapter Three Responsibility for Crime. It is only lately that we are beginning to find out anything about the origin and nature of man. Laws have come down to us from old customs and folkways based on primitive ideas of man's origin, capacity, and responsibility. It has been generally assumed that man was created different from all the rest of animal life, that man alone was endowed with a soul, and with the power to tell good from evil, that in the beginning man was perfect but yielded to temptation, and since then has been the subject of an everlasting contest between the powers of light and the powers of darkness for the possession of his soul, that man not only knew good from evil, but was endowed with free will, and had the power to choose between good and evil, and that when he did wrong he deliberately chose to do so, out of an abandoned and malignant heart, and that all men alike were endowed with this power, and all alike were responsible for their acts. The old indictments charged that John Smith, being a wicked, malicious, and evil-disposed person, not having the fear of God before his eyes, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil, etc. It followed, of course, that John Smith should be punished, or made to suffer, for he had purposely brought all the evil on himself. The old idea is still the foundation of the world's judgment of men, in court and out. Of course this idea leaves no room for mercy and understanding neither does it leave any chance to give the criminal the proper treatment for his defects which might permit him to lead a normal life as a matter of fact every scientific man knows that the origin of life is quite different from this that the whole current conception of the individual and his responsibility is a gross error and that no correct judgments can be based on the old foundation that no sane treatment of crime can follow this assumption of man's origin and nature, that the result of this foundation is almost infinite injustice and cruelty to a large and constantly growing number of men and women, and that it tends to endless injury and evil to society. The conception of man and the treatment of crime and criminals by the courts is not better nor more scientific than was the old-time doctor's treatment of physical ailments by magic, incantations, and sorcery. The origin and development of all animal life is the same. In fact, the development of plant life is on a similar pattern. The origin of a human being is a simple cell, an egg. This cell is fertilized, and through growth after fertilization, begins dividing and building and taking on the form and semblance of a human being. All children have the same origin, the same development, and the same pattern, yet no two are alike. Each has a distinct and different equipment from any of the others. The size of the body, real and potential, the size and fineness of the brain, the delicacy and sensitiveness of the nervous system, the innate instincts upon which conduct mainly rests the emotions which control action and which flow from the structure in short the degree of perfection and imperfection of the machine is all hidden in the original cell no well-informed person now thinks of questioning the fact 
that the main characteristics of the human being, as of every other animal and plant, are hidden in the germ or seed from which it sprang. The laws of growth and development which govern organic matter were not made for man, and do not accept man. Life begins with the cell, and evolves according to pattern. If the cell is that of a human being, it will be black or white, male or female, tall or short, intelligent or stupid, sensitive or stolid. It will develop a large or a small brain, a fine one or a poor one, a sensitive nervous system or a defective one. It will be ruled by instincts that are all-powerful and controlling, and even the colour of the hair and eyes are in the pattern. The whole structure, potentially, is in the original cell, and infinite knowledge could tell how the structure would respond to sensations as it passed through life. It is obvious that the kinds and differences of human structure are infinite. It is no more possible for all men to respond equally to the same stimulus than it is for all machines or all animals to respond alike. It is apparent that not one of the structures can ever work perfectly, and that from the best down to the poorest structures are infinite degrees of perfection, even down to the machine that has no capacity for any kind of work. No ordinarily intelligent farmer doubts for a moment that all of this is true in the breeding of stock. He would never expect the same results from various breeds of cattle, or even from all cattle of the same breed. There is no exception to the rule that the whole life, with every tendency, is potential in the original cell. An acorn will invariably produce an oak tree. It can produce no other tree, and it will always develop true to its own pattern. The tree may be larger or smaller, more or less symmetrical, stronger or weaker, but always true to the general pattern of the oak. Variations will be certain, due in part to heredity and in part to environment. That the baby had nothing to do with its equipment will readily be admitted by everyone. The child is born with a brain of a certain size and fineness. It is born with a nervous system made up of an infinite number of fine fibres reaching all parts of the body, with fixed stations or receivers, like the central stations of a telephone system, and with a grand central exchange in the brain. If one can imagine all of the telephone wires in the world centred in one station, he may have some sort of a conception of the separate nerves that bring impressions to the brain and send directions out from it which together make up the nervous system of man. None of these systems is perfect. They are of all degrees of imperfection, down to the utterly useless, or worse than useless, system. These nerves are of all degrees of sensitiveness and accuracy in receiving and transmitting messages. Some may work well, others imperfectly. No one is much surprised when an automobile equipped with a mechanism much simpler than the nervous system, refuses to respond properly. The child is born without knowledge, but with certain tendencies, instincts, capacities, and potential strength or weakness. His nervous system and his brain may be good or bad, most likely neither very good nor very bad. All of his actions, both as a child and as a man, are induced by stimulation from without, he feels, tastes, sees, hears, or smells some object, and his nerves carry the impression to his brain, 
where a more or less correct registration is made. Its correctness depends largely upon the perfection of the nervous system and the fineness of the material on which the registration is made. Perfect or imperfect, the child begins to gather knowledge, and it is stored in this way. To the end of his days he receives impressions and stores them in the same manner. All of these impressions are more or less imperfectly received, imperfectly conveyed, and imperfectly registered. However, he is obliged to use the machine he has. Not only does the machine register impressions, but it sends out directions immediately following these impressions, directions to the organism as to how to run, to walk, to fight, to hide, to eat, to drink, or to make any other response that the particular situation calls for. Then, too, stimulated by these impressions, certain secretions are instantly emptied from the ductless glands into the blood, which, acting like fuel in an engine, generate more power in the machine, fill it with anger or fear, and prepare it to respond to the directions to fight or flee, or to any type of action incident to the machine. It is only within a few years that biologists have had any idea of the use of these ductless glands, or of their importance in the functions of life. Very often these ductless glands are diseased, and always they are more or less imperfect. But in whatever condition they are, the machine responds to their flow. The stored-up impressions are more or less awakened under stimulation. As life goes on, these stored impressions act as inhibitions or stimulations to action, as the case may be. These form the material for comparisons and judgments as to conduct. Not only are the impressions imperfect, and the record imperfect, but their value and effect depend on the brain, which compares and considers the impressions. From all this mechanism, action is born. That man is the product of heredity and environment, and that he acts as his machine responds to outside stimuli, and nothing else, seem amply proven by the evolution and history of man. But quite aside from this, logic and philosophy must lead to the same conclusions. This is not a universe where acts result from chance. Law is everywhere supreme. Every process of nature and life is a continuous sequence of cause and effect. No intelligent person would ever think of an effect in the physical world which did not follow a cause or causes. It has taken man a long time to find this out. The recurrence of the seasons, the seed time and harvest, the common phenomena of nature, were once supposed to be outside the realm of cause and effect, and due to the whim of some powerful being. But the laws of matter are now coming to be understood. Chance, accident, and whim have been banished from the physical world. The acts of men alone are supposed to be outside the realm of law. There is a cause for the eternal revolution of the earth around the sun, for the succession of seed-time and harvest, for growth and decay, but not for the thoughts and actions of man. All the teaching of the world is based on the theory that there is no free will. Why else should children be trained with so much care? Why should they be taught what is right and what is wrong? Why should so much pains be taken in forming habits? 
to what effect is the storing of knowledge in the brain of the child except that it may be taught to avoid the wrong and to do the right man's every action is caused by motive whether his action is wise or unwise the motive was at least strong enough to move him if two or more motives pulled in opposite directions he could not have acted from the weakest but must have obeyed the strongest the same motives applied to some other machine might have produced an opposite result but to his particular structure it was all controlling how any special motive will affect any special machine must depend upon the relative strength of the motive and make of the machine it is for this reason that intelligent people have always taken so much pains to fortify the machine so that it would respond to what they believed was right to say that one could ever act from the weakest motive would bring chaos and chance into a world of method and order even punishment could have no possible effect to deter the criminal after release or to influence others by the example of the punishment as well might the kernel of corn refuse to grow upward to the sunlight and grow downward instead before any progress can be made in dealing with crime the world must fully realize that crime is only a part of conduct that each act criminal or otherwise follows a cause that given the same conditions the same result will follow for ever and ever that all punishment for the purpose of causing suffering or growing out of hatred is cruel and antisocial that however much society may feel the need of confining the criminal it must first of all understand that the act had an all-sufficient cause for which the individual was in no way responsible and must find the cause of his conduct and so far as possible remove the cause End of chapter 3